This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? More dramatic or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Yes, hello and welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, three triple R's weekly all sorts of stuff show that takes a look at the crazy world beyond the horizon as well as the nutty up-close bits as well. Bushy's my name, Adam Grubb is in the house. Hello, Adam. Hey, how do you do, Bushy? I do good. Excellent yeah, news. Feeling wunderbar. I'm probably going to get in trouble for the superfluity crew for using a, a fancy-sounding accented word incorrectly. <laughs> God, you don't want to offend a Leo. We'll get to those guys in an hour's time. Do you have a chip on your shoulder par excellence, Bushy? Man, a chip on my shoulder. My shoulder weighs a ton. After last, I heard that shit last week. Hard to forgive when you're as arrogant as I am. Uh, hello, Sarah Coles. Hello. I've been on holiday. I've just returned. How oh, was that? It was good. I've got a new um, hobby. I think I have a new hobby. I'm going to become a free diver. What is that again? See, so you, you go scuba diving, but you don't have any scuba gear. <laughs> so you go really deep. So it doesn't cost anything. Yeah, scuba but also scuba. you get much closer to the animals because they are not alarmed because you're not noisy. Yeah. But you have to hold your breath for about three to four minutes. How long can you do? I can't do very long. As you know, Adam, <laughs> I, at the moment I can only do a 25-metre pool. That's all right. That's pretty good. Yeah. Hmm. If you get a chance, Colsey, and this goes to our listeners as well, there is an incredible YouTube video of a, a lady. I think they call her Shark Girl. So she free dives, but then she goes next level, and she free dives with great whites outside the cage. Yep. And she does this whole thing of, you know, she's studied them for years, and she knows when they're oh. docile, and she knows when they're not, and this heart. I mean, this was a story that probably only ends one way. But here she is, and she's just swimming along next to these gigantic prehistoric creatures designed to kill and eat flesh. Um, and she's holding the dorsal fin. No scuba, no nothing. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. So that's you in the next six to 12 months, you reckon? Um, yeah. Maybe start with little sharks. <laughs> and, and then when you, get, you have a head. when you get them tame enough, punch them in the gills. You live your lifelong dream. <laughs> live the lifelong dream. Train. Sarah always wanted to punch a shark. Yeah. Speaking of lifelong dreams, I doubt very much that Jed McCartney had a lifelong dream of panelling for us each week <laughs> listening to our shite, but how are you, Jed? I'm well, thanks. We've got a wonderful guest in the studio this evening, Adam, and uh, I think you should introduce her. We have the wonderful, as Bushy said, let's reiterate that, Pamela Morgan, um, one of the original drivers of the Collingwood Children's Farm, who so many of our listeners will have um, enjoyed over the years. She directed it for 22 years and she was also instrumental in bringing permaculture to Cuba during the very difficult period they experienced after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s. We're going to talk about all this and more. So welcome to Green the Apocalypse, Pamela Morgan. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Um, it's so good to have you on today. 
So we wanted to start by talking to you about your early life because it's quite interesting and then talk about the other stuff later. So you grew up with communist parents and we wanted to know what that was like. <laughs> it was great. We were living in Sydney and um, it was a very active scene. This was before the uh, so many people left the Communist Party. So I grew up as a child going to parties where there were fantastic people playing jazz, piano and people who kept snakes at home in their house and writers and all of that sort of atmosphere. In Fun my... people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my heroine at the time was... Um, uh, the daughter of friends of our family and she could paint railway bridges really well so I learned all about how I didn't actually do it I was too young but all about the excitement of climbing up and getting the letters right while you were leaning over the side this kind of painting I said. <laughs> oh slogans yes slogans. Slogans. Oh, sorry, slogans. I thought you meant landscape portraits no, incorporated. No, none of that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was a it, it also had some strange aspects because I after talking to Adam, I looked up what age I was when the, there was the referendum to ban the Communist Party, and I was only three. Mm. But we had um, boxes of pamphlets under our beds, and there was always this consciousness that the people across the road with Venetian blinds were peering through their blinds <laughs> to see who was coming and going and stuff like that. Did so you watch that? SBS documentary Persons of Interest? I did indeed, yes. there were four people, they were talking about the history of the 50s to the 70s of who ASIA were watching, and out of the four, three of them were communists. Yeah. So they were obsessed with communists. Oh, they were absolutely obsessed. And we all knew it. Um, we, we also grew up picking up the telephone when we finally got a telephone, and we'd all say to each other in the family, say, oh, hello... Mr. Azio Man, and how are you, Auntie Joy? <laughs> <laughs> Things like that. It's so frustrating. They would have actually been listening. <laughs> well, they, if, from seeing that documentary, they were following people to such an extent it was unbelievable. Like every move, yep. that sort of thing. Have you just... ever accessed uh, your parents' Azio files? My mother accessed hers, yes, yep. but a lot of it's. Um, blocked out yeah you can't see it all but yes that'd be that freedom we live with <laughs> and uh, uh, yes. they were it was an in, a rich intellectual life wasn't it because they weren't exactly eye to eye when it came to their particular brand of communism no they certainly <laughs> weren't the my mother was um a maoist and my father was a stalinist so we had lots of literature coming in from the russian communist scene and also from the Chinese and I remember a lot of it was sort of play fights but it was also serious but they ha both had calendars and you come out in the morning and whoever got up first would put their calendar on top <laughs> That's awesome. and then after that your parents um, you became disillusioned and you left Sydney and the Communist yeah, Party? Yeah, well, it actually coincided with us moving from Sydney to Melbourne yeah. and then they just didn't take up that activity. My mother became quite involved in the uh, socialist left of the ALP at that stage and um, and then, of course, the disillusion came from that, in that area too. Um, but she was always active, more so than my father, um, but my mother lived the life of a proper communist woman i think in that whatever the social situation was she took action 
to improve the lot of everyone. So well, you, you said that uh, yeah, your mother was a passionate activist who would throw herself uh, down in the middle of an intersection uh, for any reason. That's a, she must have influenced you greatly. Oh, yes, but also in her, the other things she did. So when she, was, when she had young children, she was influential in starting creches, community creches. As she got older, you know, her efforts went into other things and then in the later stages of her life she was... Um, working in the area of aged rights and was part of a charter of rights for people in nursing homes. That sort of thinking all the time. Here I am, I recognise problems here and trying to work towards change in those. So you went, you left home to go to uni, um, studied psychiatry. How'd that... How'd Psychology. That Psychology, yeah. Okay. How'd that go? Um, well, it was a pretty difficult time to be at university, I think. it was. Uh, I started at uni in 66. There were lots of social changes that going on. Um, and I went to Melbourne Uni and uh, really didn't fit in there. It was a very wealthy sort of area. It was basically, in those days, the sort of thing that um, a lot of quite wealthy uh, young women studied psychology at Melbourne without any intention of working. It was a sort of fill-in until they got married. So we still had all those sort of contradictions in the society, I suppose. Um, I was fairly dissatisfied. I mean, I did get a lot out of it, but... Uh, you actually said that you, one of your... Fi- after four years, you wrote something on on an e- on a exam paper... I just wrote, I can't take this seriously. <laughs> and <walked> out, but <laughs> so that was the end of that. <laughs> yeah, well, I was well into the uh, entering the hippie world at that stage. Right, so. yeah, so that's one thing you picked up at uni then? Yes, yep, yes. Okay. <laughs> and, and so you, you moved out um, to Smith's Gully. Now this, for those that aren't aware, it's, you know, up around... King Lake, that kind of area, and like a lot of the eastern mm. suburbs, incredibly poor soil. What did you get up to there? Well, I went out there. We built a wattland orb shack. Um, just Which is just as if you can sort of describe that. Mm. Well, it's posts, so we cut trees to put posts in the ground and then uh, branches and saplings between those posts, and then you, we just dug up the soil. It was that bad. Yeah. It was rocky clay and wet it and put it straight onto the walls and you squeeze it in from both sides so you've got saplings going across and clay coming to, into that from both sides and it hangs in the middle. Mm. So it's how a lot of the old huts were built. Mm. It was great. It's the sort of thing if you decided you wanted a new window, you'd just kick the wall out and in, <laughs> in a, <laughs> half a day you'd have, you know, the surrounds all stuck up again with mud. Yeah. And you don't try fine. that at home, kids. <laughs> Um, and then you worked in the garden of uh, the painter Neil du- Neil Douglas. Yes, I did, and I learned a lot of gardening skills there. It was he and Abigail ha- uh, uh, Heathcote? Yes, yeah, had a beautiful place. She'd done all the building, and Neil did a lot of the um, gardening work. And his soil, this was out at Kangaroo Ground, was very similar to what I had. Mm. And he worked at he had the most fantastic garden people would come and visit to see the garden but also not just the garden but how he managed the 
um, edge between the garden and the bush because he was passionate about the bush. So there were drains taking the, any nutrients away from the from running down into the bush. But he dug trenches across um, the contour on his place and that trench took the human waste, all kitchen waste, and then the soil was and mounded human up. human waste, just to be specific, a with... Toilet bucket. Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yep. Into the trench. Into the trench, yep. all the kitchen scraps, covered it up so it formed a bit of a hump over that. Uh-huh. And then that's where you planted the following year. Yep. It was just the most amazing garden. And Bill Mollison, co-originator of permaculture, I heard, uh, would vi- visited the place to learn um, from Neil, who was whose reputation as a gardener as well as a painter must have been quite yeah. large. And an ob- observer of of interactions in nature. So yeah. he was ju- he was a very smart person. Yeah. And it was a lovely place to work when I first started there. Um, I went to work one day and he said, there's a new bird in the garden, Pam. I just want you to go and sit under the tree for half an hour till it's used to you. <laughs> and then you can start doing your work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's lovely. <laughs> so he was influential in setting up the um, environmental livings around the Bend Co-op out at the Bend of Islands, yep. which mm-hmm. is still going. So you learned some gardening skills there. What happened next? You, I know you went up north and came back, now a single mum with a daughter, and mm-hmm. at some point you got it. There was a job application for this very new project, the Collingwood Children's Farm. How yeah. long had that been going? How long it had it been? Yeah, it had been going just a few months yeah. when they were looking for someone else to take over, and I applied for that job. Um, and. They did like me, but they thought it should be a man. So, why what, was that? What what year as well? Uh, seventy nine. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, there'd been a few teenagers, older teenagers, who'd taken possession of the place at night, and it was yeah. a bit dangerous. And they yeah. they wanted to get it back to being a safe place for all ages, and particularly for children, younger children. Um, and so they thought a woman might not be able to do that. But they didn't actually find someone else. So in the end, after a couple of months, they offered the job to me. And I, so I started working there in 79. I got a, a cow that was pregnant and there was no advertising budget. It was just people coming down and you you'd tell them the cow was pregnant and then they'd come back. And <laughs> so it just built up like... Like that, and I'd have a day off when there were no booked groups, but otherwise I worked seven days a week. And then eventually it got to the point where we had enough money to employ someone for two days a week, and we job shared, and then it just kept growing and growing from there. So, what was the initial idea of the place? Well, the initial idea came from the recreation officer at Collingwood Council, and he thought that kids were disadvantaged by not having a place where they could just feel safe and there were interesting things to do and they were out of the danger of getting up to mischief in the streets, basically. So at that time, Abbotsford was quite 
an industrial working class area? It was working class. It wasn't as gentrified as it is now. And a lot of these kids came down from the flats. So that was the intention, that there be some... this, This guy, Peter Harry, who was the recreation officer, he'd been canoeing down the river and... um, this was all the lands of the old convent which had already been sold to Lincoln Institute of Health Sciences but it was just all these paddocks with animals grazing in them as well and he just thought this is fantastic. You are listening to a Triple R podcast. Podcast, etc. You're on Green in the Apocalypse on 3 R, and we're continuing our conversation with Pamela Morgan, one of the driving forces be- behind the Collingwood Children's Farm. And I guess when we last left our story, the year was 1979. <laughs> and, uh, um, and, and the kids of Abbotsford and Collingwood, who many of them lived in a, uh, apartments and tower blocks, you actually told me before um, when we were talking earlier that in your daughter's classroom because you, of course, live locally mm. too. Mm. She was the only one that knew what a lawnmower was. Yes, yes. So how did these kids who had never experienced um, nature... And it, it has a... Even now, there's this slight, wild, f- almost fully rural feeling down there at the children's farm. How did, how did they react to this experience? A lot of them didn't know how to react. Yeah. So there's a lot of kids, and you see it even when you see kids going out into a park or something, they think, pick up a stick, and they start whacking things. So there's mm. that sort of... Like, <laughs> they just don't know what sort of things you do in that environment. <laughs> so hit but, things as your first kind of well, na- natural go-to. you know, it's pretty rough out there for yeah, some yeah. kids. And yeah. I, I... Yeah, there was a lot of... Um, that sort of trying to get them involved in looking after things, in nurturing things themselves so that they developed those, that other sort of attitude and could get more out of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. But uh, going back to that thing about my daughter being the only one who knew what a lawnmower was, at that time um, the, the sort of books that kids had to read in primary school learning to read were things like you know mum and dad are in the backyard and they're hosing the garden and the dog grabs the hose and or dad's mowing the lawn it's all these things that these kids had no experience of and that's changed hugely since then in that their experiences have or the books no, have caught the up the books have caught up with mm. the diversity of kids lives I yes. think so now it's the like reality. mum's hating the thermomix we live in a really small <laughs> flat yeah 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 <laughs> Dad's usually at work till <laughs> nine and the au pair has to mow the lawn. I have allergies. I'm allergic to peanuts. Yeah. <laughs> Loved that one. <laughs> there were a couple of kids that used to come down. I've always remembered these little boys because we had some lambs there and these two boys came down and said, um, can we hold them? And I said, Yes. So they picked, the, sat down under a tree and they held these lambs for a very long time, maybe an hour, and then they went home and then they came back the next night and they just sat there with these lambs. Yeah. Just, you know, that sort of contact, no pets at home. We actually, one of our little goats was stolen one night from the farm. That was, and we were all very worried, this little baby goat. Mm. But she was she reappeared about three days later with um, nail polish on her hooves. <laughs> 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 Sounds like 
sounds like she'd had quite the party. <laughs> Is that Lady Barber? <laughs> hey! Oh, Bushy. Sorry. Pun, pun, pun. Wow. Um, all right. Well, so, and a lot of the a lot of kids, I imagine, um, come from fairly troubled trouble backgrounds or didn't necessarily perform well in the classroom. How did you find they, in particular, found the well, lifestyle of the farm? I guess what we tried to do at the farm was allow people to relate to that environment without any of their baggage, either from school or social work or, you know, people carry, even as kids, carry a lot of this sort of image. So coming down to the farm, we tried to make it that none of that mattered. What mattered was how you related to the animals and what, what, you know, if you were able to care for that environment. And it had quite amazing results for some kids, particularly kids who um, really didn't do well at school. And the benefit of it, I think, depended on how their teachers, if they were coming in school groups, were able to make use of it. But there was a particularly good teacher from Richmond West Primary who used to do maths, art, writing, all of these things down at the farm. And fantastic artwork of um, kids spearing rats from under the chook house and stuff like that. Super. <laughs> but also... That, that was actually the rat control method, was <laughs> it? rat control okay. method. <laughs> Flush them out, <laughs> fill up the holes with water and then they all yeah. come running out the yeah. end. But you couldn't do that with everyone, of course, but she was mm. just right into how she, that environment could be used. Mm. And the principal used to come down and he would act as um, a horse for the kids to practice putting the bridle on. I mean, he just joined in. Oh, it was all... I don't know if you get away with that these <laughs> days. It's a, it's a bit loaded. People have asked questions. <laughs> did, did the children feel um, quite safe in that space? They did. We worked on building up that, that people felt safe. And there were... We did a bit bit of work we managed to get some funding for a while for a youth worker because we had a lot a number of kids coming down who were vandalizing the place a bit teenage kids or the old you know the not the very young primary school kids um and so we worked on the principle that um they walked to the farm there was an attraction they were coming down they just didn't have the social skills to relate to the place in a positive way. So we we got a social worker to just work with those kids and get them see see if she could get them involved in a project that was interesting, whether it was building or something else like that, and um, and also build them up as the people who knew about the farm. So they would end up taking uh, others around the farm act as the tour guide. So we had this lovely punk with all his clothes held together by safety pins, <laughs> teaching little kids how to give bottles to the lambs. It was just very lovely stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, was just, I was thinking just now, um, you know, the, the, the way these kids are going to respond to the farm might, even to this day, be very dependent on the adult company they keep. So, I mean, if you have... Uh, parents or teachers saying, oh, don't go too far, Jason, or don't come back here. Um, there's already, they're being inhibited, their experience has been inhibited. So did you have a bit of a 
you know, sort of let them free in the paddock kind of approach? Uh, not totally. The, I mean, there were safety issues. There was yep. a river beside the place and we mm. didn't have a fence. We insisted on not having a fence, that area fenced off so that kids could explore. And there were times when the ram wasn't safe to go near mm. or had a series of these heavy breathing rams that were a bit threatening. <laughs> you know, and, and being around horses, of course, yeah. you, you had to sort of balance that that they weigh half yeah. a ton they got steel feet yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> so not just running wild it had to be that you you learnt the way of doing things mm. there so for many years there was a um collingwood farmers young farmers program so kids would come lo- local kids would come down work on the farm and get riding lessons in the afternoon so they yeah. got to know all aspects of of the farm they would take people around, they would feed the chooks, they would milk the cow, they would do all those things themselves. Mm. Adam was saying, he was speaking to you before and you said sometimes kids who had problematic home lives would talk while they were milking the cow, so they were on the other side of the cow. Yes, that was, I mean, we we didn't know about kids' backgrounds generally. That wasn't Mm. what we were there for. We were there to give them this time out and a, a different way of relating to things. But quite often, you, when you were milking the cow and you couldn't see each other, you're on different sides of the cow, it's resting a, your the head. the confessional cow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was like that. It was, yeah. um, it was a very, yeah, close time and gentle time for people to talk to you. And you said for um, homeless kids as well that uh, who, I guess might have a bit of a fear of four walls if they're used to, if that you know they're used to being outdoors and being able to get away not a bad meeting place yeah we often did set up meetings for kids down there and they knew that we they knew they had an escape route round the river if it but they it was when they had people hadn't been able to get them to come into meetings it was that sort of situation so we could set up a meeting we'd go that far but then it was up to them if they felt really threatened by that they could just nick off they knew their their roots so so you started with um a pregnant cow and an open wall barn what if people were to go to collingwood children's farm today what what would they see Oh, well, there's a whole lot more buildings. <laughs> there's a lot of animals. There's a lot of plantings. Um, yeah, it, it's really changed quite a lot. But it's still, because it's such a magnificent um, piece of land, I mean, it's just naturally beautiful in the way that many convents take up a really nice piece of land. <laughs> this one was too. Yeah, we haven't mentioned that, have we, that it's attached to the Abbotsford Convent. So if you've been mm. there, you already know where it is. Isn't it the oldest farmland in Victoria? Well, it's. I'm not quite sure if it's the oldest, It's but it's been continuously farmed. Mm. Mm. There's never been anything else happening there since it was occupied. Yeah. By us. I'm Joel Salatin, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio. Greening the Apocalypse on Radio 102.7, Free Triple R. 
You're on Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R. We're continuing our conversation with Pamela Morgan, who was one of the driving forces behind the Collingwood Children's Farm. Spent 22 years there. And in the 1990s was one of the people who travelled to Cuba taking some Australian permaculture thinking over there. What was... What prompted you to go to Cuba for the first time? Well, I was lying in bed on a Sunday morning listening to the Latin program on 3CR and they said, would you like to have a Howard and Kennett free holiday? (laughs) And I just went, wow, I need to do this. (laughs) So that was my first trip to Cuba on the... And that um, dates it to the mid-90s. Yeah, yeah. On the um, Australia-Cuba Friendship Society has a brigade every year and you go there and you work with alongside Cubans for half the day and then you get information on the way the country runs and you go and stay stay with local people and you know it's a very informative but high level of information so you'd get the professor of economics from Havana University would come and talk about the economic of Cuba and it'd all be simultaneously translated for you. Of course, we were all going to sleep because... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound that exciting, does it? Well, one of the, yeah. one of the things that I've noticed about Cubans is, um, and particularly at that time, I'm sure things have changed, but we've got so used to that sort of very quick five-minute take of things and mm. there people can sit and listen to a lecture for two hours. No PowerPoint, no flashing lights and things like that. So, yeah, we... (laughs) Wow. We're a bit out of kilter with the style. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And what was happening in... What did you find when you got there? What was happening in Cuba? Well, I mean, so much was happening. We went to... On that first trip, we went to schools. We saw an election... Um, we went up into the mountains and I don't know if who's seen those old grainy photos of the Che and Fidel in the mountains with mm. the palm trees. Mm. We went there. Yeah. You have to walk in. You can't take any cameras or anything like that. Mm. And it's so the person who showed us round was actually one of the people in... Um, Che's group at the time so we had all these stories about how he he was he never went to bed before everyone else was sort of looked after but it was Che Guevara Che Guevara yes um but he might also hide a frog at the bottom of someone's bed just for you know silliness (laughs) a prankster revolutionary a prankster revolutionary yeah it, it was fascinating and um we went and saw a couple of there there wasn't a lot of emphasis in that trip on the urban agriculture program, but we did meet up with some people from that and had a couple of, went to visit a couple of sites. And that program was being supported from, well, a part of it was being supported from Australia at that stage. So when I came back to Melbourne, I started working in the with that support group who were called the Green Team. Mm. And a year later, they were looking for someone to go over to Cuba and work in the project and asked if I'd go. So I jumped at it, (laughs) of course. I had long service leave owing me and so I toddled off to Cuba to to work in this project, which was a permaculture 
project with an NGO in Cuba. But there was a lot of um, interrelationship with the government uh, urban, urban agriculture department. So they, by this stage, they'd set up a, a department within their Ministry of Agriculture that was specifically related to ur- urban agriculture. Now, now, they were doing this not out of, um, you know, uh, the kind of... <laughs> there's a bit of a movement for urban food in Australia. It's coming from largely kind of connect back to where your food comes from, environmental values. Mm. It was a different situation in Cuba during the 90s, wasn't it? It was a matter of desperation. It absolutely was a matter of desperation. And um, so the Soviet... That Cuba had very close relationships with the Soviet Union, very favourable trade relationships. They got good prices for sugar. Um, they got cheap imported fuel and f- foods as well. So they were. It was a very important part of their food system was this relationship with the Soviet Union. That prior to the revolution, they did have. Um, sell a lot of sugar to the states but they just cancelled all the contracts at the time of the revolution so Mm -hmm. Cuba was left floundering in that sense and that's when the Soviet Union stepped in and um, this relationship was forged so all of that just suddenly stopped they lost oh it was something like 50% of their imports they if they could grow food in the country they didn't have the petrol to transport it to the city. It was mm. just people lost a lot of weight. I don't. It's a long time ago now, the Biafran famine, but they were talking about a similar drop in calories. So people were getting gaunt, you know, gaunt cheeks. I know a friend of mine said they used to watch the telly to see the news presenters to see how much of their um, bone structure was exposed now. <laughs> that was one of the things they talked about. Wow. So, I mean, which is a sign of the, I guess, it, the famine or the, was shared fairly equally by the sound of things. <laughs> well, uh, they had rations and yep. the idea was that everybody got an equal ration. Mm-hmm. Of course there was black market. Yeah. But effectively that, that was organised um, by the government. They'd always seen themselves as responsible for the food security of the nation yeah. and they they tried to maintain that so they in every every area there was a, a rations place and you'd go down with your card and you would get the food supply for your family it wasn't a very good food supply there was a preference given to um, elderly children invalids yeah. would get any eggs or milk but other people just sort of had to... What about uh, expected mothers and so forth? Oh, yes, expectant mothers. So the history of Cuban agriculture was one... There's not like a strong sort of um, high-producing peasant class like you would have in China. So did they have much to... When they suddenly had to not just simply be growing sugar in this large industrial model, did they have much to fall back on? No, they didn't, because the history was huge sugar plantations um, with slaves working on them, a very poor uh, small-scale landholders um, who mainly got itinerant work in the in the sugar mills. Not that wasn't so. That we had the slaves who had no access to land. Mm-hmm. Then 
the small landholders. The countryside was quite poor before the revolution. With the revolution, the emphasis was on education and people going to university and people came to the cities. So there wasn't much knowledge at all in we would have a much higher knowledge of food production, so, so backyard what, food production. What, what had to change and what did change in Cuba to stop? Because it sounds like although there was malnourishment and not enough calories for everybody, there wasn't um, the kind of thing that you hear about in North Korea in the same period where there was mass, massive loss of population, people actually dying. How did they, how did they avoid that catastrophe? Well, they had to very quickly um, open up other means of food production. So it started off with, um, first of all, government agencies using their own lands and their own employees to grow food. And then it extended out from there that they would um, ask the population to become involved in food growing as well. So it was seen as a revolutionary activity to yeah. grow food and support support the nation. So they, they there were a number of things they did that were very interesting and one of them was they developed this system of access to land. So if you saw a, a block of land that was vacant, you could apply to use that for food growing and you would have a, have a lease a free lease on that for the purpose of growing food so that that in fact is still going and people have handed that down within their families if it's still in food production it's like they that's their land but they don't have a title and, and you um, yourself went through the process of this to get a piece a plot of land mm. did you did you find you had from your experience working in these tough soils um in melbourne's east you know, having to build up from nothing and and your experience on Collingwood Children Farm, did you have uh, things that were of use and you could share? Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, soil building, I think, was the most important one. So I used to trundle up to the local market and collect scraps. So we managed to get a wheelbarrow with our very well-funded um, <laughs> project. One whole barrow. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the way back... Everyone would talk to me. They'd say, oh, what are you doing? Have you got pigs? Because sometimes people kept a pig in a little room. Or have you got chickens? I said, no, no, we're going to make compost. This was happening at a much bigger level. I mean, I'm talking about real inner city. This is central Havana, so it's Mm. pretty... There's not a lot of farming there. But by this time, the government had organised huge worm farms out in the country. So if there were organised growing areas that... So it all gets a bit complex. I'll have to describe that system. So getting people involved, the government allocated land in every municipality of Havana. So everyone in Havana was able to walk or ride a bike to an area that produced... um, fresh greens basically and then the other ration stuff still came in from the country Mm. so things like um, root vegetables rice citrus would come in from the country but there were fresh greens everywhere in the city Um, so this these big scale worm farms were supporting that system and as time went on and this is this was more recently those those what they call organoponicos in the city were handed over to 
cooperatives. So there was an incentive there. Still with cap prices, so the government capped the prices, they provided the infrastructure, but groups of people could get together and work those places and increase the production or if they wanted to try new things, that was fine. But there was a, a certain level, that the price level, that they couldn't go above. But in the city... Um, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about that. That was ha something that happened, even though there was a, an Organa Panico in central Havana and um, old Havana, mm. people didn't really... They went there and bought. So me walking down the street with a wheelbarrow full of this stuff, it was... <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, it was interesting. And it was just that opportunity for conversation and all that sort of thing and just changing the face of the city a little bit. Because most of these Organoponicos are hidden. They're not necessarily in a main street. Mm. People can go to Cuba and not realise that there's farmer's markets and that all of this is happening all around them because it's not, it's not advertised. It's the food supply for that nation. And so it's Do you know what the stats got up to? I've heard some pretty high figures of how much of Havana's and, and the other cities' food, or at least vegetables, were grown within the peri-urban zone. I think in Havana it got up to about 80%. Yep. Wow. Yeah. And, but that is... I mean, that sounds extraordinary, but if you actually look at the figures for urban agriculture... Um, in the world, it's mm. very high as well. It's something like 50% of chicken is grown by small farmers in urban areas yeah. across the whole world. Yeah. We're the ones that live in this system where it all Segregated. happens in factories. <laughs> mm. Indeed. Um, what an amazing life. Uh, we've been chatting with Pamela Morgan this evening and uh, we're going to have to start to wrap things up as we approach the end of the hour. Pamela, what's going on? What are you up to at the moment? What, what's on the horizon that we can have a quick yarn about? Well, I've been growing vegetables, basically, oh, in nice. my yard, <laughs> <laughs> putting all these um, experiences from Cuba in particular into practice on yep. intensive food production. But I've also been working with the um, Moreland Food Gardens Network to the Moreland Council has just passed. Now I've got to get the wording right. An urban food strategy. Nice. Uh, no, f f urban food systems strategy. Mm -hmm. yep. And so that's been quite a lot of work and meetings and things like that. But it went through council the other night. It means that Moreland Council is actually going to take some action on this. They're going to have. They've got a budget for three years. Oh, and cool. we're not sure yet how that's going to be spent, but it's to have a um, fair, just and vibrant, sustainable, just and vibrant, all of those words, but food system in Moreland. Do, do you think we could feed ourselves if we lost most of our food imports and oil more or less overnight? By the area of land, yeah. we could, because there's not much land in mm. Cuba, but... Yeah. Um, yeah. I might have to get... So, yeah, we'll do the sort of reverse exchange. Now they've done it, we'll get them over here, much like you went and helped in Cuba. That's <laughs> well, exactly. idea. Yeah. Well, awesome. they have spread the knowledge around. They go to lots of countries in Latin America in, for various sorts of exchanges. I'm sure they'd be willing. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Pamela. Thank you for making the time to come in this evening. Thank you, Jed, for panelling like a trooper. My pleasure, Bushy. Yeah, great. Great discussion. Indeedy. And Colsey, Megahertz training's back on. Get to the track. Yeah. <laughs>
I'm going to do it, I think. Super. Convince me. Awesome. And uh, Adam... <laughs> Uh, have we locked in next week? We're still no, up we don't know what's happening. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that though. Is that superfluity crowd in the next room? Hello? No. Oh, no. All right. <laughs> you were like a distant whispering voice in the background of my head. Who would have oh, thought right. we'd catch you off, off guard? We were just oh. comparing John Saffron impersonations. Yeah. Oh, right. You, I was away last week, but I heard uh, from the, the sanctity of my kitchen, you guys have got the shits with uh, my, my radio excellence. <laughs> kind of love the excellence. This has really snowballed, this conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. No, yeah. love the excellence at all times. Yeah, you, well, you've offended a Leo. So. Oh, dear. Uh-oh. Yeah, well, yeah. let me tell you, in the, in, in the sort of opening tune tonight, I wanted to... To, to highlight this, yeah. there's it's the, too late, Casey. <laughs> there's there's the debut of uh, the dog, Abby the dog. No, right. you will hear her in tonight's opening track, but in a very unexpected way. So I just wanted to clue you in for that. Well, is that going to is that going to smooth over the rift between Bushy and me though? About, I don't think yeah. so. No, no that's, you're that's just, just trying to change the subject. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Just trying to redirect. Fair enough. Well, the people in the next room are about to ruin the next two hours of your day <laughs> with some half assed seat of the pants. <laughs> Collage of Billy Joel anthems. Actually, set, um, set, that, set that bar low, Bushy. Yeah, that yeah. actually suits us really well. There's some excellent stuff on Radio National for now. <laughs> Bushy's my name. We'll see you next Tuesday. But until then, have all the fun. Lights green in the apocalypse, done and dusted. Trying to get the planet as crust adjusted. That must be the most environmentally trusted. If everyone disgusted like they just did, I think we would have sussed it. If we got up on this, the world wouldn't teeter on the precipice. But if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. So then, clock takes on a roulette mindset. Someone drops a beat like a bad that you can't dismiss that disc or diskette. You're tugging a dragnet, dripping a cold sweat. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. I think you know where you must be with Clementine and Scott and me. Superfluity. I think you know where you must be Clementine and Scott and May Superfluity This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne Truly independent community radio Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au